What's happening, everybody? How are you? So, my name is Noel, one of the pastors here, and we are in the second week of a series working our way through the Apostles' Creed. And if you weren't here last week and you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, we're about to tell you by reading it all together. So that's what we're going to do during this series, is each week we're going to stand up, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, Last week we covered the first line, today we're going to cover the second line. And so if you would stand with me, uh, let's read together uh, this famous creedal statement, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, you guys can grab a seat. Today... We are going to talk about this line in the uh, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. In other words, uh, today's sermon is going to be about Jesus. Now, here's the thing about that. Every Christian sermon should be about Jesus. It's like one of those things. You should be able to throw a dart at your Bible, which I don't recommend, but throw a dart at your Bible, hit a verse, and be able to preach a Christian sermon out of that verse. In fact, one of my favorite compliments that I ever received from a new person that was attending RIV is she came up to me and she was like, we were, we were looking for a new church home. We just moved into the area um, and we just kept coming back to Riverview because every week you guys just talked about Jesus. You just kept talking about Jesus every single week. And while that was a great compliment, there was part of me that, that was a little bit sad. Because if you can hear the same sermon in a synagogue, a mosque, or a self-help seminar that you hear in a church, if it's not all about Jesus, it's not a Christian sermon. There may be a lot of truth in it. There's a lot of truth in this world. But every Christian sermon is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so getting to this part of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus, his only son, our Lord, should be an easy one for most of us. Um, but the last couple of years... There's been kind of like this trope online where every time something cultural or political in our society happens, someone will tweet out, if your church did not talk about insert political topic here, maybe you should find another church. (laughs) And I think that's stupid. Let me fix that for you. If your church did not talk about Jesus this week, perhaps you should find another church. (laughs) It's about Jesus. I believe in Jesus, his only son, our Lord. That statement in the Apostles' Creed basically summarizes the question, what do we believe about Jesus? Now, there's a lot of stuff about Jesus in the Bible, but this is the core stuff. And a lot of people want to say, well, Jesus was a philosopher or a prophet or a wise man or a historic figure or just some guy that got uh, maligned and killed. But what Christians believe is this. 
We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to pick a couple Bible verses. <laughs> we're going to look at one in Matthew that's going to lead us to one in the Old Testament that's going to lead us back to another one in Matthew, and that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can flip, tap, swipe, dance, somersault your way over to Matthew 16, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. The Pharisees and Sadducees, these were religious leaders of the time, approached and tested Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, when we're studying the Bible, context always matters. And right before this happened, Jesus had just performed a pretty amazing miracle. He had taken seven loaves of bread and a few small fish, and he fed 4,000 men and their families with this. And at the end, there were seven large baskets of leftover. And what Jesus did is he then jumped onto a boat and he went uh, across the other side. And when he got to the other side, he runs into these religious officials. Now we don't know whether they heard about what happened, if word had traveled fast, um, but what they're asking him for is something he had just done. They asked for a sign from heaven that he was the Messiah. Now, I, I don't know um, whether this is the same group of guys that have been following him around on the other side of the water, but they wanted to see for themselves. Essentially, what they were saying to Jesus is, we will believe in you if you do this one thing for us. Show us a sign. Have you ever done that to God? Have you ever done that to Jesus? I'll believe in you if you do this one thing. Of course we have. We probably all have. But that pretty much defines how I was in high school and college. Everything was, God, if you'll show me this one thing, if you'll help me pass this test, I will follow you forever. If you really want me not to commit this sin that I have my heart set on committing, you better show me a sign. These guys were putting Jesus to the test, but their test was they just wanted to know, are you the Messiah that we have been waiting for? Now, I imagine that these religious leaders expected that Jesus' answer would be, sure, right? I'll show you a sign. And I think um, they would have been much happier with a no than with what Jesus actually said to them. They just wanted a sign. By the way, have you ever heard the joke, Jesus and his disciples uh, went into a bar? Um, Jesus orders uh, 13 waters and then winks at his disciples. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, right? Jesus had these in his pocket, right? He could turn water into wine. He could walk on the water. He could do all kinds of stuff. So they asked for a sign. And, and, and they wanted to just see one of these things. And this is what happens. Verse 2, Jesus replied, when evening uh, comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You guys have heard, all heard that, right? Red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in morning, sailors take warning. It's the same thing. Jesus says, you guys know this. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. He's like, listen, you guys can look at the sky and kind of figure out the weather. And you're looking around you right now, and you're looking at all that's happening, and you're looking at what I'm doing, and you're hearing the stories, and you have no idea. It doesn't matter how many signs I show you, you guys are not going to believe. 
In fact, I went back through Matthew, and I found every time um, in Matthew that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw a sign from Jesus up to this point. Now, I don't know if it's the same group of guys, but I do know they communicate, right? And so here's everything that they had seen so far just in the book of Matthew alone. Quick perusal. They had already seen Jesus heal a paralytic dude, raise a girl from the dead, heal a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, cast out a demon, heal a guy's shriveled hands, feed 5,000 of their families from five loaves and two fish, feed the 4,000 that I just told you about. By the way, that's two different instances when Jesus did that. Um, in one town, he healed every single person who could get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. Then he cast out another demon. He healed a whole lot of people in another town, including blind people, mute people, and paralyzed people. All that happened before this verse. And then they're, you know what, Jesus? If you'll just show us a sign, we'll believe in you. Right? It's like one of the most underrated movies of all time. It came out in 1983. I don't know if you should watch it or not, because I don't remember if it's got inappropriate stuff in it. So I'm just saying that. But if you've seen this movie, Steve Martin, Man with Two Brains. <laughs> At least one person has. So, again, not vouching for the whole movie. But I do remember there was a scene where he was asking his dead wife if he should do something. And he basically said, if you don't think I should do this, show me a sign. And he's talking to the picture of her on the wall. And then all of a sudden, this ghostly voice starts saying, no, no. And the whole house starts shaking. And the, the picture starts spinning. And the wall cracks. And wind is blowing at him. And, you know, Steve Marty's like, listen, the wind's blowing at him. And then everything settles down. And he goes, so just any sign. <laughs> like, like, he said, I will be on the lookout for any sign, right? And, and that's sort of what's going on here. It doesn't matter how many signs Jesus performed, they were always going to want more. That's how we are. Maybe that's why Jesus said to them, verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. He said, no. <laughs> Let me rephrase Jesus' response to make it crystal clear. If you are looking for a sign in order to believe, it betrays an evil and adulterous heart. How's that for encouraging? But it doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, isn't somebody who's searching for a sign, aren't they saying that they believe that there might be something? I mean, even last week I said to you guys, remember what I said? I said, if you don't believe in God, pray to this God that you don't believe and ask him to make himself real. But did you hear what I said? I said, ask him to make himself real in this book, through these scriptures. See, what happens is we're always looking for a sign. We're looking for God to prove it to us. And he says, you want a sign? You get the sign of Jonah. And this is wild for so many reasons. And to grasp them, we need to go to the book of Jonah. <laughs> now, if you jump from Matthew just a little bit, it's actually right at the end of the Old Testament right here, to the book of Jonah. You, if you grew up in the church, you probably know the story of Jonah a little bit. We think it's a little kid's story, a cute little kid's story, but it ain't. It really isn't. 
Let me read some of this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now we have to stop for a second because we have to get the context. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the biggest superpower of their day and they were the definition of evil and wicked. And I do want to be a little bit careful because I see a lot of little people in the room. So we're going to walk through this a little bit carefully once you read between the lines. The way that these folks... Um, would carry out their evil is they would go into a city and they would make sure that there were no men left in that city and they would make sure that there were no pregnant women left in that city. And they would make sure that all the women that were left in that city who weren't pregnant became pregnant before they left. Got it? That was their whole strategy. It's how they wiped out city after city after city. They were evil. They were wicked. They were awful. That's how bad they were. And God says to this guy, Jonah, I want you to go there and tell them they're bad. Right? Jonah got up to flee, right? To Tarshish, which is over in Spain, from the Lord's presence. He's like, God is telling me to go to Nineveh. I'm going to get as far from God as possible. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. It says it twice. What he's running away from is God. And by the way, that is exactly what I would do. And you, you're lying if you, if you think that you wouldn't. Uh, put, let me put this in context. God comes to you, speaks to you in an audible voice and says, insert your name here. I want you to go to North Korea, to Pyongyang, I want you to just go into the capital, find Kim Jong-un, and I want you to tell him, you are evil and wicked, repent. What are you going to do? You are going to run away from the Lord's presence. That's it. I mean, that, that's the smart thing to do. Obviously, I'm running away. But here's the crazy thing. We find out later in Jonah, the reason he ran away was not because he was a coward. We find out later in Jonah, the reason he went the opposite way and ran from the Lord's presence is because he wanted justice. He was like, no. If I, he was worried that God's character was actually going to show up. He was worried that if he went into Nineveh, that they actually might repent. And if they repented, that God would be faithful to save. And if God saved them, that he wouldn't pour out his justice on them. And he wanted them dead. He's like, I would rather run from the Lord's presence to make sure they pay for their crimes. Now, for those of you who have read this story, you know what happens. He gets onto the ship. Huge storm happens. The sailors on the ship are like, yo, whose fault is this? And no one fesses up. So they cast lots, right? And the lots randomly land on Jonah. And, then, and they're like, hey, you. And he's like, yeah, uh, let me just read it. It says, then they said to him, tell us uh, who is to blame for this trouble we're in. Uh, they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is your country? What people are you from? It's great. They're like interrogating Jonah. We're trying to figure out, there's this huge storm. It's got to be somebody's fault. The lots say it's you. What's going on? Here's Jonah's answer because Jonah is stupid. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea <laughs> and the dry land. See what he's saying? Yeah, yeah, this storm, totally my fault. 
um, I worship the God that makes the ocean that's, that's running over your boat right now. And, and then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what have you done? And the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. <laughs> He's like, I'm running away from God, guys. And he made the ocean. And so if you know the story, um, they, they say, well, what should we do? He's like, just throw me over. So they threw him over. And he's sinking, and it actually says this in, in, in Jonah 2. It, it says he was sinking, and seaweed wrapped around his head. Picture this. He's sinking, seaweed wrapped around his head. It says, and then I remembered the Lord my God. <laughs> As he's sinking, and he cries out to God to save him. And God does. He gets swallowed up by a fish. Fish swims around for a little while barfs him up on shore. He's covered in half-digested fish and seaweed, and the Lord speaks to him again. And the Lord says to him, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, great meaning big, not meaning wonderful, and preach the message that I tell you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great, that's big, not wonderful, city, a three-day walk. So this is how big the city is. If you start walking in the morning on one day, it's going to take you three days to get across the city to walk across. That's huge, right? Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. This is really important. Don't miss any detail in there. The city is how big? It'll take how many days? Three days. When did Jonah preach to them? On the first day of his walk, here's Jonah. Gets to the border of Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be demolished. <laughs> That's all he does. He strolls back out of the city. And, and, the, and here's the crazy thing that happens. The people in Nineveh repent. They believe in God. In fact, it's so crazy. It says it, word got all the way to the king of Jonah's half-hearted preaching, got to the king, and the king was so worried. He's like, you know what? We're all worshiping God now. We're all covering ourselves in sackcloth and ashes, including the animals. Seriously. They went to their flocks and covered them in sackcloth and ashes. Baby gerbils, everybody. Sackcloth and ashes. He's like, just in case. He's like, I want to make sure we're all covered. Right? And Jesus references this event. As a historical event, and some of us, we hear that whole story of, of Jonah and the fish, and we're like, that's crazy. There's no way that that thing is actually true, but it's not crazier than the event that it foreshadowed. This miraculous historical story of Jonah was just a picture. It was just a shadow. It was, it was, just, it was a, a hint of another miraculous historic event that was to come. Let's go back to Matthew, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus says, an evil, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. He just drops this bomb and he walks away. What is he doing? Well, this is why context matters. Because if you flip back just four chapters, you'll see he just already had the same conversation with a bunch of religious guys. And I don't know if it's the same religious guys or if word traveled. He just had the same conversation with them. This is what it says in chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, 
So the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus says, you want a sign? This is the sign. And it's coming. There's a detail that is so easy to miss in this little interaction Jesus has with the religious guys. Jesus, who is God himself, who is absolutely perfect, who steps into creation, lives a sinless life, completely perfect sinless life, to save an evil, adulterous people like the Ninevites and evil, adulterous people like us, right? Who does Jesus identify with in his illustration? Jonah. He makes himself Jonah in the story. And Jonah is legitimately the worst person in the book of Jonah. (laughs) He's the worst part of the story. In fact, if you read through Jonah all the way to the end, here's what you're going to discover. He never repents. He whines. He goes out onto the top of this field and he's like, I'm so mad, God, because it's so sunny. And so God causes this plant to grow up over his head. And then he's like, that's better. And then God causes a worm to eat the plant and falls away. And he's trying to get Jonah's attention. He's doing everything he can to get Jonah's attention. And Jonah never repents. Now, a lot of people think Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. So maybe someday he repented, but he knew that an important part of his story is that he did not repent. And somehow, Jesus identifies with the bad guy in the story. With the evil Jonah. Why? Why? He says, well, just like Jonah was in the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus be buried in the ground. And what will be on him? In the ground. All of the evil of the world. Jesus identifies with the most evil character in the book of Jonah, I believe, because of what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin so for us so that in him we might become the righteous of God. I guess this God, Jesus, became sin for us. He became all of the evil of all of the world on the cross and was buried. And that's why Jesus could say in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Catch this. The Ninevites, some of the world's most historically bad sinners, in fact, some of the worst sinners in the entire world, responded to the words of one of the world's worst preachers of all time. And they repented. They turned away from their sins. And they will be in heaven with you if you believe and you repent and you turn away from your evil and your sin. You want a sign? That's your sign. Jesus has been doing this forever, (laughs) saving evil people. And asking for another sign was just evidence of unbelief in the face of evidence that was just staring them in the face. Something greater than Jonah was standing there, staring them in the face. And he didn't, they didn't believe. Now, let's go back to Matthew 16. Because this gets really great. Verse 5 and 6. The disciples reached the other side and they had forgotten to take bread. That's foreshadowing, by the way. 
And then Jesus told them, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees. What, what is Jesus saying? Well, what does leaven do? Leaven is yeast. Any bakers here? Right? Yeast, a little bit of yeast in a lot of dough will kind of spread through the dough and it'll cause it to rise. I've got a friend who makes pizza every Friday night. And he makes his dough for his pizza every Sunday night. And then he puts a little bit of yeast in it and lets that baby rise all week, right? That's what yeast does. It's a little bit of it spreads to the whole thing. So Jesus is like, listen, there's a little bit of some stuff here that these guys, these religious guys are, are throwing out there in their teachings and it could infect the entire loaf. And, and the thing that's interesting is the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a different set of beliefs and a different set of teachings and yet they had unified against Jesus. And the leaven that they were working into the people was disbelief. Little seeds of doubt. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us another sign. That one can't be real. Wait, that one's a trick. In chapter 12, when he did a sign, they said, you know what? The devil gave him the power to do that. They were never going to believe. It didn't matter how many signs he gave them. So Jesus says, watch out, guys. Watch out for that leaven. Um, beware that leaven that is being thrown in. And, and this is what his disciples said in response. Verse 7, they were discussing amongst themselves, we didn't bring any bread. You don't think that's funny? That's hysterical. Jesus is giving them some really important teaching. And they're like, oh, crap, bread. We left the bread on the other side. We got in the boat. We came over here. We forgot the bread. And what had Jesus just shown them? Bread is not an issue, right? He had just done two miracles, feeding 4,000 people in their family, right? He, he just fed all these people when they didn't have enough bread. And they're like, crap, we don't have any bread. Jesus, verse 8, says, you have little faith. Why are you talking? Why are you discussing amongst yourselves that you don't have bread? He's like, you guys are just missing the point. So then they continue on. They get into this religious area, this Jewish area. And it says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? This is the moment of truth. And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets, right? It's just like today, people are like, well, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a wise guy. He's a philosopher. He was some dude who was maligned and killed him. You know, just coming out revolutionary. People have all kinds of ideas about what Jesus, who Jesus is. But you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And that's the question. It doesn't matter what the world thinks Jesus is. Who do you say he is? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, which by the way, it means rock. And he said, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, son of Jonah. Now, here's what's fascinating. We know from other gospel accounts that Peter's dad's name was John. Now, this could be 
a simple like Greek thing, right? Because like John and Jonah sound similar to us in English. It's very similar also in Greek, the original language here. And it could be just a little a simple typographic thing as people are writing it down. I don't know. Theologians are a little bit split on this, and so you can't be dogmatic about it. But as I was studying it this week, it hit me a little different. I was thinking, you know, my dad's name is Don, but I'm a son of Jonah. I am prone to disobedience. I'm prone to running away from the mission that God has given me. I'm prone to doing a half-hearted job when I really don't believe in it. When my internal cry for justice flares up so strong that it overtakes the message that I know that I need to declare. Theologians are split on this. I don't know. I don't know if if this is a reference to his dad or not. But I can tell you this. Jesus looks right at him and he blesses him. He said, blessed are you, Simon. Son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Jesus is saying, God uses broken people to achieve his purposes. Just like he did with Jonah. Just like he does with Simon Peter. And if you don't believe that, just keep reading. (laughs) Verse 21 From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. (laughs) Peter's like, yo, this is not going to happen on my watch. You are not going to suffer on my watch. You are not going to die on my watch. This is not happening. And he missed the whole Jesus saying, it was necessary to happen. (laughs) He misses the whole Jesus saying, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. And he's like, this ain't happening. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, do not miss that this is a couple verses after he just said, you are so blessed. I'm giving you a new name. Your name is Peter. On this rock, I'm going to build the church. Jesus now says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. He calls him Peter the Rock. You know, Peter Dwayne Johnson disciple, right? (laughs) And then he's like, Satan. And this should give you great comfort. Because even Peter who knew Jesus intimately well, messed up. Missed some of the message of what Jesus was telling him. Even Peter, who Jesus just said, he was going to use him mightily to build the church. He was going to mess up. And what that means to me is that we can be okay with being a bit of a mess ourselves. And we can be okay with someone calling out our mess and not having to feel like we are somehow uh, subhuman, substandard, terrible, just because someone says, you know what, you're kind of missing the ball here. Watch Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase yesterday because it is the best Christmas movie. Come at me, James Granger. Um, um, and, 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 and his dad, what does his dad do in, in Christmas Vacation? 
after he loses his mind, his dad walks up to him and says, I don't remember the exact quote. I was just watching last. I did tell my wife I could sit in the other room and listen to the movie and play the whole movie in my head. I've seen it so many times. But his dad says, hey, you're too good of a father to have the outburst that you just had. And what did he feel? Loved. We can be okay with being a mess and having a loving father say to us, you're screwing up right here. Because Jesus did that with Peter. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. What that means is he gets to tell us when we're a mess. He gets to tell us when he's going to fix the mess and how he's going to fix the mess. And he's going to give us a calling. Here's the calling, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life will, because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? That also can be translated soul. And what will anyone give in exchange for his life, which can be soul? What does Jesus give us as our calling? If you want to follow him, he says this, deny yourself. That means it's not going to be about you anymore. Can't be about you anymore. Our world has lied to you, and it continues to lie to you. Our world says it's about you. It's about you looking out for number one. It's about you caring for number one. And yeah, should you care for yourself? There's some mental health stuff and all kinds of stuff like that. Is that number one? No, it's not number one. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, a convicted criminal in Rome was forced to carry their own cross to their crucifixion. Why? Because it declared that the authority that you had rebelled against was now over you. Jesus says, show the world you follow me. And the result in the short term may seem like you're losing your life. But it's a lie. It's not about losing your life. You just aren't going to fight for you anymore. Your world will be turned inside out like Jesus's was. And in him, you know what you're going to find? Life. That thing you were searching for, when you start pouring your life out for others, when you start laying your life down for others... It's going to turn you inside out. Our, our culture just wants us to be so myopically, individually focused that it's all about me, 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 me. It's no. It's about Jesus. It's about others. It's why Jesus said, the greatest command is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't mean you love yourself. But the greatest command is to love God and love the neighbor. That's what's first. Jesus is so much more than what this world has to offer. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And so if you are in one of our in-person services, there's tiny little cups uh, like this. By the way, pro tip, uh, take out the bread first. Um, if you don't, the juice is going to be on your lap and you're going to be doing laundry. Um, for those of you at home who have uh, gone and got your communion elements. You can grab your juice and your bread as well. And, and, and here's the deal. When we take the Lord's Supper together, which you can do anytime in the next couple songs, 
When we do this, we are preaching a public sermon. Like Jonah, half-heartedly stepping into Nineveh, we bring our half-heartedness to Jesus and we preach a sermon. Just like Peter. No, 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 Jesus, it's not gonna happen like that, not on my watch. We step in and he takes our half-hearted sermon Together with all of us, we publicly declare that and he says that he takes messed up people like us and he achieves amazing things. And so this is what we're gonna do. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, in the next couple songs, take the bread off the bottom, which symbolizes Jesus' body given for us and the juice symbolizing his blood that was shed for us And take this as a public sermon around everyone else preaching the same sermon that Jesus is the only one who saves. He is the one who gives life. That we believe in Jesus, God's only son, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this public sermon of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the public sermon of our lives. We thank you that you take messed up people like Jonah, messed up people like Peter, messed up people like us, and you save evil people like the Ninevites and like Jonah and like Peter and like us. And and we don't even know how to thank you for that. And so we just pray that you would continue to turn our lives inside out. Give us life as we lay down our lives. We pray this all in King Jesus' name. Amen.